little bit of time to find Habakkuk, probably because many of you have never turned there before. So it is a very small book. It's right after the book of Nahum, right before the book of Zephaniah. It might not be super helpful, but if you hit Matthew, you've gone too far. All right. Habakkuk chapter 3, I'm going to read the entire passage. So follow along as I read. I'm reading in the English Standard Version. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hands, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your, on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice and lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. For the choir master the string instruments. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you so much for the opportunity to come before you. And, um, I just pray that you would be with me as I share the things that I've studied. Just thank you so much for the book of Habakkuk and the truths that are found in it. Lord, I pray that you would not let my pride get in the way, but I pray that I'll be able to clearly articulate the things that, that you've shown me through this passage. I pray that you would just give me the words to say, give people the ears to listen. I just pray all this in precious and holy name. Amen. All right, you folks can be seated. All right, Habakkuk. How many of you... This is a new passage for you, Habakkuk 3. Okay, so it is a little more familiar than I thought. That's good. All right, so Habakkuk 3. Um, I started studying this passage probably about two months ago. Uh, just randomly picked it up, started studying it, and it has quickly, over time, become my one of my favorite passages. I love Habakkuk 3. So follow with me as I go. If I keep this thing behind me. So it is an honor to be able to share with you folks um, 
to be my second time preaching here. I think I did a Sunday evening once, um, but I'm excited to be able to share with you things that I've been learning through this. Uh, so the main thing in Habakkuk 3 uh, is, well, there's so many different things, but you cannot just stick to Habakkuk 3. It's impossible to just preach Habakkuk 3 without looking at Habakkuk 1. So really, I'm preaching the whole book of Habakkuk in 35 minutes. So we'll see how this goes. Uh, I did not time myself, so we'll see how we can do. But start off, we as a people live during a time of plenty. We have been very blessed to live in the time frame that we live in, um, especially right now. Uh, we're uh, full. <laughs> we're not searching for our next meals. We're not at war with our neighbors currently. Um, we live in a time where things are economically pretty easy for us. But the question I'd like for you to ask yourselves is what would happen if all of that was stripped away in a moment? What if all these things that we place value on today were no longer there tomorrow? Would we still be able to rejoice in God? Would we still be able to say, God, I am grateful for this day, for the things you've given me? Can we still rejoice when it seems impossible, when everything's been taken away? And that's what Habakkuk uh, is going to hopefully teach us over the next 35 minutes. Now, before I dig into this passage, I would like to give a little context. Like I said, it's kind of impossible to really figure out what's going on here without looking at some of the past things that have been going on. So in my study, what I found uh, is Habakkuk 3, or Habakkuk, was written shortly after the death of King Josiah. So in the end of Habakkuk, or in verse 16, it says, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who are invading us. So what is it talking about when it talks about this day of trouble? It's not mentioned in chapter 3, so we have to look back. And like I said, scholars believe this was written shortly after the death of King Josiah, which if you remember, he was the king who brought religious reform to the people of Israel. He's the one that finally started turning the people back towards God. Uh, to show you that, I'm going to turn quickly to 2 Kings 22. You can turn if you'd like to. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Uh, but like I said, before Josiah, we had Manasseh, if you remember, one of the wickedest kings that's ever ruled Israel. Uh, idolatry, um, sacrificing children, anything that you can think of evil, Manasseh did it. And Ammon uh, was no better. and He was right before Josiah. So when Ammon died, Josiah came to reign. So I'm going to start reading in verse 1, 22. It says, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. Eight years old. <laughs> He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adiah of Boscath. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of David, his father. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Now in the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, the secretary to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord repairing the house. That is, the carpenters and the builders and the masons, and let them use it for buying timber and cord stone to repair the house. But no accounting should be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hand that they deal honestly. So what Josiah, one of his first orders as king, is he talks to his secretary, who is Shaphan, he sends him to the high priest uh, to collect the money that has been gathered so they can begin rebuilding the temple. 
So his first order is to, let's start rebuilding the temple. Let's rebuild this house of God. So this is what's going on. So Shaphan goes to Hilkiah, the priest, asks for the money. Picking up in verse 8, And Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen, who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan, and Akbar, and the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that have been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So what you can see in this passage, that is how wicked Israel was before Josiah. Um, to the point where the book of the law, the Bible, God's word, was lost. Uh, and then Josiah comes to reign. He starts rebuilding the temple. They find the book of the law. They bring it to Josiah, read it to him, and he tears his clothes because he realizes the wickedness that Israel has been doing. So this is Josiah. This is this young boy. He reigns 31 years and turns Israel back towards God, finally, after years and years of wickedness. So this is uh, the time frame that's been, this is what's been going on. Things are great until, you turn to chapter 3, Josiah dies, and Jehoahaz, his son, comes to reign. In verse 31, so Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign. He reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatol, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. So Josiah is reigning. He dies in battle. His son Jehoahaz is anointed in his stead. And immediately, all the things that Josiah has done to turn Israel back towards God is reversed. And Jehoahaz follows after the things of Manasseh and Ammon, turns them back towards idolatry. He only reigns three months before he's killed. Uh, and they set up, I forget who they set up, but another evil king, uh, and this is the time frame that Habakkuk is writing, Habakkuk 3. Uh, it's coming off the heels of a righteous king who turned them towards God, and now idolatry and just wickedness. So that is where we're going to pick up. So if you want to turn back to Habakkuk 3. And I'm actually going to, let's go to Habakkuk 1 for a little more context. Now that you know the time frame, things are happening. Habakkuk comes before God in Habakkuk chapter 1. Start reading verse 1. The oracle of Habakkuk, the prophet, that the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention are arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice never goes forth. So we can see that Habakkuk comes before God, and he's complaining. <laughs> he comes before God and says, God, where are you? Uh, Josiah has died. This evil king is reigning. They've, we've turned against God. We've turned against you. Why aren't you punishing? Why aren't you punishing the Israelites for the wickedness that they've done? 
says the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. So Habakkuk is complaining to God, saying, God, where are you? How can you let this wickedness come upon God's people? In verse 5, I love this. The Lord answers Habakkuk. He says in verse 5, Look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. So you can just really see the power of God in just this little, this little verse where God comes back to the back and says, oh, I'm doing a work, but you wouldn't even believe it if I told you what I was going to be doing. And then he goes on to tell him his plan in verse 6. We'll come back to verse 5 because uh, it all ties together. But in verse 6, he then goes on to explain his plan for punishing Israel. He says, behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march forth through the breadth, or march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than lepers, more fierce than the evening wolves. The horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. For they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. So this is God's plan. Israel is performing wicked deeds. Back it comes to him, says, why, why aren't you doing anything? So I have a plan. You're not going to believe it. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, this bitter and hasty nation, and they are going to crush Israel. And you look at some of the descriptions of the Chaldeans. They are a fierce, fierce people. It says they all come for violence in their faces. They gather, they gather captives like the sand. At kings they scoff. God has been raising up the Chaldeans in the in the back or in behind everything, and He's going to cause them to crush Israel. And then we see Habakkuk comes back in verse twelve, and he replies to this plan. He says, "Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for a proof." You who are of pure eyes and to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he? So we see as Habakkuk, he doesn't get it. Just like back in verse 5, God says, I have a plan. You're not going to believe it if I told you. He tells him his plan. Habakkuk says, oh, that's not a very good plan, God. Like, how, can you, how can you raise up a people more wicked than us to punish us? So Habakkuk is again, it comes back to him, he's complaining. He's saying, God, this is, this is not a good idea. How can you do this. So this is just a bit of the backstory as to what's going on. Now we're going to turn back to Habakkuk 3 and we'll actually start walking through it. So hopefully that helps as we go through to see this is the backstory. This is the context. Israel is doing wicked, wicked deeds. Habakkuk is questioning God. God gives him his plan. Habakkuk still questioning God. Is this really a good plan? Now we get to chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So Habakkuk knows it's coming. He's not doubting the fact that God's raising up the Chaldeans. He knows that destruction is on its way. And he pleads with God, he says in the end of verse 2, in wrath, remember mercy. I know you're coming, but remember 
mercy. And then what starts now, verse 3 through the end of the chapter, is what is known as Hebrew poetry. So this is a lot like uh, one of the Psalms, something David would have written. This is something that would have been sung uh, at their meetings. You can see that in verse, end of verse 19, it says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. He's giving this to the choir master. It's something that would be, have been put to music. And so there's a lot of poetic language that goes in verse 3 all the way through the rest of the chapter. Many messages can be preached on all the things that are talked about. But I'm going to do kind of a 30,000-foot view, uh, just to kind of give you an overview uh, so you can kind of see what Habakkuk is even talking about. Hopefully it whet your appetites so that you go back and study it for yourselves. So starting in verse 3, God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hands, and there he veiled his power. So what is the significance of Teman and Paran? Now it is different than what I originally thought. Um, this is actually the second time that I've had the opportunity to preach this message. And in studying it a little more in the past couple of days, I realized something um, that I hadn't seen before. Uh, so it says, God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. So what is the significance of that? Now, Teman is a city that is due east of Israel. It is directly east of them. It says he came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hands, and there he veiled his, fat, his power. Before him went pestilence and plague, followed at his heels. So pestilence and plagues following at his heels Sounds kind of familiar to the plagues of Egypt, doesn't it? Where God comes forward and he brings plagues and all these pestilence and delivers Israel from Egypt. Now, the time when Israel was were captives in Egypt was probably one of, if not the darkest time in Israel's history. Uh, it was uh, just a time when wickedness was going on. It seemed as if God wasn't even there. God had abandoned his people, and they were just slaves. Excuse me, they were slaves in Egypt. So in verse 3, it says, God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. Remember, Teman is in the east. What else comes from the east? The sunrise. So what it says, if you look at verse 3 and 4, it sounds an awful lot like God, or like Habakkuk, is using poetic language to compare God's coming to Israel, to Egypt, to deliver them, like the sunrise, breaking the darkness of Egypt, the darkness that was of that day. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. It's like a new morning. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hands, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. So, like again, like I said, there's a lot of poetic language that goes in here, but I believe that's what it's talking about is, because as you look through the rest of the chapter, what God's going to do, or what Habakkuk is going to do, is he's going to walk us through a bit of a history lesson of what God has done for the people of Israel through the ages, his faithfulness to deliver them from Egypt, walk them through the wilderness and into the land of Canaan. So this is the start of it, the start of his psalm, the start of his, the psalm that he's writing. It's God is coming. God came from Teman. Holy One from Mount Paran, his splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hands and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. 
verse 6, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered and the everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. And when God divided the land of Canaan for the Israelites to have a possession, it says he shook the nations. The nations that were in Canaan, God goes before them and shakes them, starts to cast them out. I love the imagery that we see through here of God walking before his people. As you, as you read down through, you can see that Habakkuk is showing God as a warrior that's walking before his people and casting out the people that are in front of them, destroying the, na- the late nations of Canaan and delivering Israel from Egypt. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nation. So he stood and measured the earth. You just kind of see God with a tape measure out there, measuring the earth, saying, all right, this, is, this land is going to be for Benjamin. This land is going to be for Naphtali. He's spreading out Egypt. He's giving them the land of Canaan. It says, he looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. So again, with poetic language, what are these eternal mountains that were scattered? The everlasting sil- hills that sank low? Uh, again, I think this is talking about the kings that are in Canaan. These mighty, mighty kings who have been ruling there forever. If you remember back in Joshua, uh, when the, the spies went to spy out Canaan, they said that the men, the warriors that were in Canaan, were these giants. They were huge. They were a very fierce people. And their rulers were these kings. They were, Canaan or Habakkuk is referring to them as these mountains. And as God goes before his people, he's dividing up the land. And he says the eternal mountains were scattered and the everlasting hills sank low. These kings, these mighty kings are bowing before the power of God as he walks forward to deliver his people. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? Again, just looking at God as a warrior. Let's keep reading. Uh, in verse 9, I love this. You strip the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. God is going before his people as a warrior. He strips his sheath from his bow. And he's going, he's going out to save his people. So again, this is just God walking down through, or Habakkuk walking down through just the history of Israel and God's faithfulness to them. It says, The mountains saw you and writhed. In verse 10, The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The deep lifting its hands on high. What does that sound like? The crossing of the Red Sea, the crossing of the Jordan. Even creation itself is subject to the power of God. It lifts its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. If you remember, um, actually I'm going to turn back there. Joshua chapter 10 is a cross-reference for the sun and moon standing still in their place. 10 verse 12 says, At that time Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said to the and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of, of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. So Joshua, right after they had gone into the land of Canaan, they're going to war against this people. 
The war is taking longer. The battle is taking longer than it should. Joshua prays to God. says, son, stand still and moon stop. And God, you can see him grab the sun and it just stops. The sun stands still. It says for almost a whole day, for 24 hours, the sun did not move. And Habakkuk is referencing that in verse 11. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. It's the imagery of God going forth uh, now with a sickle in his hand, just threshing as if, they're, as if the nations of Canaan are nothing but wheat. Nothing before him as he's threshing them, casting them out and preparing Canaan for his people that he has just delivered from Israel. You went out, verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. It's awesome to see the power of God to deliver his people. He even uses creation against them. You can see that. Uh, again, I'm going to real quickly in Joshua 10. You don't have to turn there, but this gives pretty awesome recount of God's power, starting in verse 6. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servant. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, look at this, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. That is one of my favorite stories uh, where Joshua is fighting these people. Uh, they start to flee before him, and God starts throwing down hailstones on them. Uh, God is the one doing the work, and we keep seeing that. Habakkuk keeps saying, you are the one. You did this. You're the one that cast them out. It wasn't Israel. It wasn't Israel's forces. It wasn't their power as a people, their military strength that delivered them. And we can see even uh, the one time that they didn't choose to seek God, and they went and fought against this little town of Ai, they crushed them. They crushed the Israelites. But when God was with them, they could not be stopped because God was delivering the land of Canaan. He was delivering Israel uh, from Egypt and giving them the land of Canaan. So that is uh, a lot of the poetry that goes down through. is just talking about uh, that, about God's deliverance. We, peer, we pick up in verse 16. And listen, this seems, as we read this, to remember Habakkuk. This is the same man who, just a few chapters before, is doubting God, saying, God, where are you? Why are you allowing this evil to come upon us. Why is Israel so wicked not being punished? Now in verse 16, after this recount of God's power, it says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. 
Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Doesn't really sound like the same man, does it? <laughs> I mean, Habakkuk, the beginning of this book, is complaining, asking God, where are you? Why aren't you doing anything to punish Israel? God comes back to him and says, oh, I'm doing something. I'm about to crush them. I'm going to use the Chaldeans to do it. And then he goes back to him and says, well, God, that's not a very good idea because why would you use them? people more wicked than us to crush us? Acting in fear is what Habakkuk is doing. And now we see after recounting the power of God, Habakkuk has finally come to the end of himself. As I hear, my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. So now we see Habakkuk humbled, wholly humbled before God. So what happened? What happened to Habakkuk? How is he different? What has changed in him? Habakkuk recounted the power of God through the ages. He saw the power of God to deliver his people, and it changed him. He had an account, he had a, an encounter with the God of the universe, and it changed him, changed his mindset. So I will quietly wait for the day of trouble. And now in verse 17, 17 through 19, that he continues, he says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. So what is this talking about? The fig tree not blossoming, no fruit on the vines. This is utter depravity. This is the aftermath of war. Uh, he knows the Chaldeans are coming. He knows what's about to happen. Habakkuk says, Though the fig tree should not blossom or fruit beyond the vines, the produce of all the field fields yield no food. The flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will still rejoice in the Lord. So to put this in terms that are a little more understandable for us in this day and age, uh, though the stock market crash and all our money is worth nothing more than the paper it was printed on, though the farms seize up and stop producing, we have no more food, but we enter a depression greater than anything we've ever faced before, yet I will still rejoice in the Lord and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So how about us? How does this relate to us? As I stated at the beginning of the message, we have much to be thankful for in this day and age. So what happens when it's all taken away? How can we get to the point where we say what Habakkuk said, where we can say, I will rejoice in God of my salvation? How did Habakkuk do it? He took a look at God. He saw God's faithfulness through the ages to deliver his people, and it changed him. So what's the answer for us? Get to know God. <laughs> Look at the faithfulness of God, what he's done for us through the ages. Where's the best place to see that? 
in his word. In his word. Read God's word. Look at his faithfulness through the ages. It's powerful. Because God is our strength. He's faithful. In fact, he says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. How can he do that? Verse 19, Because God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Verse 6 of Habakkuk says, His ways are everlasting. So the God that faithfully cared for the people of Israel, the God who rained down stones on Israel's enemies, the God who split the Red Sea, the God who threshed the nations of Canaan and delivered uh, Israel is the exact same God that watches over us. His ways are everlasting. He hasn't changed. If you are, in fact, a child of His. Now, did He allow hard times to come upon Israel? I mean, absolutely. And we know that the Chaldeans did, in fact, invade. And they did, in fact, crush Israel. But He brought them through that time. And He used that time to turn them back towards Himself. See, God is a jealous God. He's not willing to share us. He's not willing for us to serve him and something else. We can't serve God and this world. And trials, the trials that Israel faced, the trials that we face, they have a way of revealing to us who we really serve, don't they? I mean, are we serving the temporal things that can be taken away in a moment? Those trials will certainly reveal that to us. When those things are taken away, who did we really serve? Do we serve the temporal comforts of this world that can be swept away in a moment, or do we serve the everlasting God who is the same yesterday, who is the same today, and is the same forever? Hard times will come, but as Christians, we can still rejoice because we know who holds our future. The God who delivered Israel, the God who walks before his people as a mighty warrior, the God who is in control of all creation, all creation is subject to him and to his power. This is the God that we serve. And this is the God that Habakkuk had an, had an account with. This is the, the God that Habakkuk saw, and it changed his mindset so that he could rejoice despite tribulations that were coming. So I challenge all of us, who do we serve? Who do we really really serve? Are we serving these temporal things to be taken away? Or can we say as Habakkuk, I will rejoice in nothing. I will rejoice when everything is stripped away from me and I am left with nothing but me. Just me and God, I will rejoice because he is my strength. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. 